Shalom everybody, I'm the LK Bridgeford and this is Unmarginalized. Before we jump in, please note that the following episode contains discussions about ableism, internalized ableism and mental health. So please take care as you listen and check out our show notes for support options. Today on the show, I have Laura Petanuzo. Laura is a disabled writer living on Wurundjeri country. She has a Master of Professional Psychology from Monash University and works with Youth Disability Advocacy Service, creating plain and easy English content. Her words have been published in various places, including Link Disability Magazine and The Age. Laura is also a newly appointed member of the Victorian Disability Advisory Council. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. Firstly, I think congratulations are due for your appointment to the Victorian Disability Advisory Council. Can you tell people that don't know what this is, what is this structure, what is the role of it, but also more personally, what are you hoping to achieve by being a part of it? First of all, I am so honoured and excited to have been appointed. But yeah, so essentially the um, the advisory committee uh, reports to the state government. Um, so we're a group of disabled people. Um, and just to specify, I say disabled people using identity first language because that's my personal preference. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, everyone on the committee, of course, can and will identify however they see fit. Um, but essentially we are... Um, a group of disabled people who use our um, lived and professional experience to provide advice to the government um, on, I suppose, uh, whatever elements of um, issues and topics that pertain to disability um, that might arise during the three years of our time on the on the advisory committee. That sounds fantastic and so important. So, so glad that you're there. And as a disabled person, can you tell us what intersections of identity do you navigate? I guess for me, um, the intersections that I navigate on a daily basis that I am most conscious of, I guess, are um, mostly just like being a cis woman and uh, being a disabled woman. Um, And I guess I've become more conscious of, I guess, existing within those intersectionalities over the past few years. Like, I obviously always knew that I was disabled, like I was born with cerebral palsy while I was born like three and a half months premature um, and like have CP as a consequence. Uh, But it was almost as though I, I never really kind of, I suppose, identified as disabled. I was just kind of like, okay, like here's this thing, but I'm just not going to tell anyone about it. Like I've um, been ambulant, so I could kind of hide it except for the fact that like people would sometimes be like, oh, what's wrong with your leg? And I would just lie and be like, I don't know, like <laughs> um, <laughs> I fell or something because yeah. who can be bothered like going through the whole story? And then I guess similarly, I know that I have a lot of privilege in the sense that I'm European. So like I'm not like white in the traditional, like I'm doing air quotations, um, but I yep. don't identify as a person of colour. Um, yep. And like I haven't, I guess, had to navigate racism and things like that. And like as someone who's Italian, I know that that's just pure like circumstance and time because I know that like a lot of my relatives did have to deal with like racism. I'm curious about the way you described yourself. I'd love to hear more if you can explain to me like about that because I think that's something I struggle to explain to 
people because I'm an, like I say, I'm an immigrant. I am an immigrant, but that's kind of the word I use as a shorthand for, you know, a lot of things. I am like, I can pass as a, as you said, traditionally white person. I don't identify as a person of color, but I am an immigrant. I'm also Jewish. So yeah. Can you talk about how you identify and how do you navigate that space a little bit? So I guess the first thing that comes to mind for me is that like when I was in prep, which is like the first year of primary school, um, I we had to do an assignment where it was like we were writing a letter to our grandparents um, and my nonna, which is my grandmother, is like my favourite person in the whole entire world. Um, and so I started this letter by writing like, dear nonna. Um, and then someone else in the class like looked at it and was like, nonna what do you mean like it's grandma and I was like no like nonna like I just I don't think I understood that like not everyone called their grandparents like nonna or nono so um I guess identifying as maybe like Australian Italian although I have technically never like explicitly put that label on it but I suppose that's one example of how it's kind of manifested in my life not in a lot of like overt huge ways but I suppose just in like um smaller conversations and smaller realizations that oh hang on the way that I see the world the way that I interact with it and with other people is shaped uniquely by like the culture and people that I grew up with even yeah. in the sense that like like even now if I step into like um an Italian like cafe or shop and I hear people speaking Italian it's like it kind of feels like I've come home somewhere deep in my soul. That's lovely. Thank you. Can you give an example of what, I guess, being a disabled woman is like for you? What does that intersection kind of look like in your life? Yeah. So I guess um, the that intersection kind of manifests for me in both, as it would for many other disabled people, in internal and external ways. So for me internally, I guess it looks like, I'm slowly learning to unpack a great amount of internalized ableism, um, a lot of which I still don't even always recognize as internalized ableism until like one of my lovely friends will be like, hey, Laura, for instance, um, working at Widas, like I remember one day I had to take um, some like sick leave because I was spasming quite badly, um, which is to say like my legs were shaking. That's um, sometimes like part of my cerebral palsy. And I said to my supervisor, who is like the greatest person in the world, I was like, oh, you know, I feel really bad um, that I had to do that. Like, I feel like I was kind of like letting everyone down and like, I want to do my best because I really value this job and everything. And she was like, Laura, like, it doesn't make you like a bad employee. It just makes you human. And I think she was like, mm. you know, I think that is a bit of internalized ableism manifesting yeah. itself there. Um, and it was really interesting because she even reframed it and was like, well, what about if like I needed to take time off for like, if I was sick or something. And I said to her, well, of course, like that's totally fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> but not for me. But not for me. No. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's the, um, I guess, well, one small part of the like internal experience of navigating that marginalization. But I think the greater challenge really is um, the external one. And for me, I think uh, it manifests differently depending on whether I'm 
like ambulant. Um, so whether I'm walking or whether I'm like choosing to use my wheelchair. Um, interestingly, it tends to be easier when I'm using the wheelchair. I think the wheelchair is a symbol that a lot of people recognize as disability like even though obviously it is in no way representative of the broad spectrum of the disability experience as a consequence of you know a lack of representation and um you know misinformed um societal attitudes um people just tend to i guess um conflate wheelchair and disability uh so people tend to be a lot nicer to me um, when I'm in my wheelchair and like they'll get like out of my way or like they'll um, like it's just they'll just kind of like if I'm crossing the road or something in my wheelchair and like I'm a little bit slower like they won't toot me whereas if I'm walking um, and like it's taking me a long time to cross the road or like I'm struggling to get like onto the curb or whatever like people will like actually toot me or like gesture at me or like I've had a tram driver yell at me because I haven't like gone up the stairs quick enough oh my god yeah that that in particular was really awful and I just cried so I think in that sense the I guess the perceptions of other people uh what has made it like more difficult for me as a disabled person and I'm, I'm curious as you talk about that lack of representation, whether that's something, you know, that how we have that perception of disability equals wheelchair mm-hmm. and no wheelchair equals non-disabled, basically. Yeah. Do you have an idea or I'm sure you have lots, but kind of one <laughs> idea of how can we change that misconception in our society? Primarily, it's just, I guess, about like education, like, and um, awareness. And when I say that, I don't mean to say that it's up to us as disabled people to provide that education and awareness, because obviously, like, it's not, we are not anyone else's, like, teaching tool. Um, It's, I guess, able-bodied people recognising that they are only ever temporarily able-bodied in the sense that, you know, as we age, a lot of people do acquire disabilities. um, And it's not... Um, an imposition for able-bodied people to learn about and accommodate disabilities. Actually, it's a gift. Um, And so I think it starts with conversations like the one you and I are having right now Um, and the one that every person, able-bodied or not, can have um, with their friend, their family, their neighbour to just kind of, I guess, to take something that has been invisible and make it visible and bring it into the metaphorical figurative light thank you i've got another question about i guess disability and maybe your experience of it so in another episode that i've done this season with jess kapusinski evans she was talking about how her in her opinion there's a bit of a divide in the disability community between Mm -hmm. people with physical disabilities and people with psychosocial disabilities and you identify as a person who also has psychosocial disabilities so can you talk about you know what is your experience of having both and if you do feel the same in the sense of that division that division is something that I have noticed um and I mean I guess even in my own experience I was comfortable identifying as um someone with psychosocial disability long before I was comfortable saying that I um, was someone that had a physical disability, even though I've had the physical disability 
obviously like my whole life since I was born. But I think because like I ne would never say it as I have like a psychosocial disability, I would say like I have anxiety or depression. So I think it is really important for me to, when I speak openly about my experiences with disability, to acknowledge that, um, you know, I have both the psychosocial and the physical. And I think that particularly given like the language that the NDIS uses around, so like, you know, calling um, mental health conditions, psychosocial disability, um, you know, in like my lived experience work, like um, on the psychosocial disability or mental health side, um, like I have seen and heard a lot of resistance from people with mental health challenges or mental illness or whatever they um, term yeah. them I prefer to actually identifying in that way and actually saying you know but I don't like want people to think I'm disabled or I don't want to I guess be associated with that word and I think that's a demonstration of the fact that societal ableism has so much to answer for in the sense that it's created this sense of I guess almost not revulsion, but um, just absolute fear around the word disability to the point where people, even though it actually is their experience, are just yeah. so reluctant to actually acknowledge that. Yeah, I guess that's just really sad. And I'm hoping that maybe slowly um, that can start to shift. Thank you. And I guess I'm curious about how those identities of you know your physical disabilities and your psychosocial disabilities how how do they impact your writing uh like they both impact it but they impact it differently so um the psychosocial disability impacts my writing in the sense that pretty much every character that i write tends to have some kind of psychosocial disability um that's just kind of i guess i I process the world emotionally. I guess we all do, but I think um, emotions are my primary means of um, encountering um, people and things and um, and just kind of making sense of everything. So what that means is that when I write, um, often uh, like I'll read through like pages and pages that I've written and be like, hang on, um, there's not much actual physical description there or like there's not much dialogue. It's literally just feelings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just laughing in identification because I've got like a huge amount of pages that are filled with feelings with absolutely no action and nothing like actually happening. So yeah. Yes. Oh my God. Even like fan fiction, like, okay, I used to write so much fan fiction and I would, I look back at it now and I'm like Laura you literally just there's no plot um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who needs a plot when you have the feeling exactly yeah <laughs> that's how I guess my psychosocial disability impacts what comes out on the page yeah in terms of how it impacts like when I'm able to write um I guess like I kind of use writing as a form of catharsis. So whether it's journaling, which I try to do every day, or whether it's kind of trying to distract myself from something like upsetting um, in the real world by just like setting a timer for like 20 minutes and going, just write whatever, just like get words out on the page um, and kind of get lost in the words for a while. So that yeah. when the timer goes off, I can come back to um, come back to like real life and whatever it was doesn't seem quite so pressing and overwhelming anymore. Oh, I love that. That's such a good tool. I'm going to use that <laughs> if you don't mind. Absolutely. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. 
can we talk about dating? Sure. Okay. So I I haven't been um, dating in a long time. So I'd love to hear about your experience because I know from so many people just generally are struggling with dating at the moment with online dating and the pandemic and everything. So as a disabled woman, what has that been like for you? I guess I've basically just given up during the pandemic um, just because I still am very much like not really going anywhere. Um, like I will go visit my nonna um, who's 92 um, in a nursing home. I know. Um, and she has had COVID and it was so scary. So like going to see nonna like once a week is like my big adventure. But then what that means is that I'm there's no way I'm going to risk like you know being like oh I'm gonna go like go on a date with someone in person because it's just not worth that risk also like I have I've never really like um had say for instance like a photo of myself in my wheelchair on like my dating profile and that's something that I feel like maybe I should do just in the sense that like it's part of me and you know I like I don't want to hide my disability but it's, and I guess it's just really fascinating because I like, there's no like outward sign that people are going to be like, oh, she has a psychosocial disability. Um, whereas in relationships, it's the psychosocial disability that is like the hardest one to manage. Thank you. And with your, how you're talking about putting a photo of yourself in your wheelchair and I guess, revealing in a sense that you have a disability, either physical disability or psychosocial disability. How have you found the experience of actually, I guess, disclosing that? Well, in terms of psychosocial disability, I'm very open about that. Like as soon as I like make a new friend, basically, I warn them um, because I tend to get like, I call it new friend anxiety, um, where... I'll just be like, oh, like, I really want this person to be my friend, but that probably means that they hate me um, or I'm going to do something wrong and then I'm going to make them dislike me and it's going to be awful. Um, so I tend to just be like, hey, just a heads up, like, I'm a really anxious person. So if I'm seeking reassurance um, a lot, like, that's why. Um, or like, if you don't hear from me for a while, like, it's not because I don't like you. It's because my brain is telling me that, you know, you don't want to hear from me or I'm a burden or whatever other, um, like maladaptive cognitions I've got swirling around in there. Those are really good tips. Have you ever had a time where you've disclosed a disability and it didn't go well? Not like immediately, like, like I've had times when like, it has been hard for people to manage my psychosocial disability and that that sense that like I do disappear um like if I am feeling really anxious I will pull away um and I know that that can be really hard like for the person on the other side to deal with because it feels like it feels like I am like I am actually pushing them away and that must be really hard and awful and it's like it's something that I'm working through like therapy love it um dialectical behavior therapy in particular especially love it yeah what what has helped me at least with the psychosocial disability is having an awareness of like how that manifests in relationships whether it be friendships or otherwise and just kind of trying to I guess be like if you see me doing this like this is what it means like it it might feel like 
um, you know, like I hate you or I'm mad at you, but actually it means that my brain is doing this. Um, and if my brain is doing this, here is what I will do to snap me out of it. Here is what maybe we could do together um, to help snap me out of it. Uh, and for the most part, like people are understanding and lovely. I would love to go back to your writing because we touched on it a little bit before. Can you tell us about your writing? What do you love the most? What do you love writing the most? And what are you working on at the moment? If you can share. When I write, it's it's an act of, I guess, an act of affirmation and an act of um, consciously choosing to take up space, whether it's space on a Word document or like space on a page. Um, and it is a very good uh, frame of reference for where my mental health is at, um, because there have been times when I haven't written because I believe that I don't deserve to take up, like literally, um, I don't deserve to use a piece of paper um, or I don't deserve to um I guess, like, you know, take up, like, space on a Word document. Um, so it it feels like an act of courage to show up to the page, um, no matter what words I put on there, um, and also an act of, like, choosing myself. Like, when I come to the page, I'm choosing to be in the world. I'm choosing to honour my ideas and give them life. So... Yeah, that, in that sense, um, writing, I suppose, yeah, it enriches the connection that I have with myself. Uh, but also, like, I really like to write letters um, to my friends and family. So in that sense, I think it also enriches the connections that I have with them. Uh, so I'm currently working on a, a historical manuscript, which, yeah, I'm really excited about because it focuses on um, a, an empress in Austria. Her name is like Cece and she had a psychosocial disability um, and she's now really renowned for like her fashion sense. But a lot of um, historians and biographers mention fleetingly her psychosocial disability and the impact that it had on her children and her husband, the emperor. Um, but none of the works actually focus on like how that psychosocial disability played out in those familial relationships, which I just find endlessly fascinating. So um, I'm writing the manuscript from the perspective of her two daughters, um, looking at how their relationship with their mother and with each other um, is in some ways shaped by the psychosocial disability in their family. And... I was actually going to ask you about your reading experience, which is obviously very related to your writing experience, because I think most people who write kind of read. So as a disabled woman, how do you feel your reading experience is shaped by your identities? I mean, I know that for me, like it totally, my identities totally shape how I read text. For example, I always search for like strong female characters. And if I see like perpetuation, I guess, of toxic ideas like toxic masculinity or gender binaries or ableism or racism or anything like that. It makes it so hard for me to enjoy the text. And yeah, I guess I'm curious for you, how how do your identities shape your reading experience, do you think? My identities 
absolutely shaped my reading experience quite explicitly in the sense that for a long time I sought out books with a representation of psychosocial disability and I still do. Um, but then once I started embracing um, and acknowledging my physical disability um, and disability pride, I then also started seeking out uh, books with disability representation. And it's interesting, I've noticed that I just can't consume any media in the same way anymore, um, whether it's like books or TV shows or movies or podcasts. Like there's a TV show that heaps of people have said to me, Laura, you have to watch this show. And I watched the first episode. And actually, I think you and I might have had a conversation. We had a Twitter conversation about it. (laughs) Yes. And I just despite the fact that so many people have recommended this show to me, I watched the first episode and there was just terrible like disability representation. And I just, I'm so angry and I just can't bring myself to watch um, the rest of the show. But yeah, so I think similarly with books, like I was listening to, re- I was reading an audiobook uh, recently um, and it was a, uh, like an Australian author and it was like a, I guess like a historical drama. and. I was a few chapters in and I was like, oh yeah, the plot's quite engaging. And then one of the characters just casually dropped the R word, like calling another character that. And I was just like, no, I don't even care how engaging this is. Like, get this away from me. So just to explain to people in case someone who's listening doesn't actually know what we're talking about, I'm not going to say the word, but the R word is just referring to an ableist slur, which is just a word that was used basically against disabled people. Um, for many years and so we're not going to repeat the word but that's what we're referring to yeah um having said that though um we're very lucky in the australian literary landscape in the sense that we do have a lot of um own voices writers um and just own voices for anyone who's not familiar um refers to writers from um any marginalized background although as far as i'm aware it did originate with um a disabled person so say for instance like a disabled writer writing a disabled story And so we have so many great examples of that in Australian literature, which is wonderful. Um, And I seek those out and absolutely devour them. Yeah, same. And I guess it kind of leads me to my next question, because I guess when I read, like you say, that book that had the R word in it, I feel the same. Like I want to, like, it makes me want to write an email to every single person who was involved in making that book come to be like printed through the entire process. Um, and it makes me very angry that all these people in the background, the editors, the publicists, all of those people and, you know, sensitivity readers, whoever was involved kind of didn't raise any flags. And it leads me to my question about, you wrote an article recently for, I think it was originally for Higher Up, that was then republished, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so the piece was about Lizzo's use of an ableist slur. And do you mind if I read like a little bit from there? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Lizzo is not the only person responsible for the content of her songs. Her producers, her co-writers, her management, and a whole host of people must have heard that song. Not one of them stopped to consider that it might not be appropriate to throw around a slur the use of which would serve to normalize and reinforce dangerous and ableist ideas. I guess I'm wondering about something that, you know, your article didn't get to, which is what do you think 
needs to change, apart from as obviously all of the disability advocates and hopefully allies calling out these problems, but they keep occurring and they're everywhere. As we see, we said they're in TV, they're in podcasts, they're in books, they're in articles, they're everywhere. Yeah. Um. So what do you think needs to happen? Like, how can we kind of change that from maybe a higher level? Like, how can we structurally change those things? That's a really good question. And I guess you really touched on it in the sense that it does have to be systemic. Um, You know, um, we can start from the ground up and start with those um, like individual actions, but um, lasting meaningful change um, has to come from decision makers. It has to come from, you know, the people who have influence and power using that to support us. And I think there needs to be people with lived experience of disability at all levels of leadership. Um, And I think that's why I'm really passionate about things such as the Victorian Disability Advisory Council. Wonderful. Thank you. As lots of other emerging writers and emerging artists do, you also have a day job. Can you just talk about how you manage to kind of have a day job and then do your writing and your advocacy like it's a lot it is um a lot and to be honest um i don't always manage it very well uh you and i were talking before we started recording about a particular week a couple of months ago when i just pushed myself way too hard and regretted it um and so for me i think like managing it is about, you know, we have leave, like, I I mean, I'm very lucky that I'm um, employed um, on a part-time basis, which means that I accrue leave and can take that when I need to. And also sometimes a big part of it is just saying no to things. Like um, as hard as that is, like there's so many like opportunities for writers and creatives in the world. And, you know, if if I really like, um, you know, like, if I had my way, so to speak, I would be saying yes and applying to all of them. Um, but, um, you know, and I just... laugh in recognition. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, yes. I'll like pitch to that journal. I'll pitch to that publication. Um, I'll enter that competition. Yeah, yeah. That would be a full-time job. Yeah. So I think for me, it means like, uh, managing my spoons really carefully. So thinking like, for instance, with my cerebral palsy, like I have to do physio um, to kind of help me manage the um, like the spasms and the pain and fatigue and stuff that comes along with that. Uh, but there's a trade off in the sense that if I do physio, like I then have like a great deal of fatigue and I then can't write. So I'm kind of like, OK, it's a physio day, so it's not a writing day. Um, and like sometimes that's really hard. Um, but as a consequence, I don't do my physio anywhere near as much as I should. Can I just tell you something my physio once told me? Please. She actually told me that they prescribe, the amount that they prescribe is actually something like three times more than what they think people should do because they know people don't do enough. So (laughs) FYI, you might be actually doing enough. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay, that is so reassuring. (laughs) That is one of the most reassuring things I have ever heard. Oh my God. Okay. I know because wow. she was sending to me like oh do this three times a day and I looked at her because we had a good relationship and I said to her I am not gonna do that three times a day you know that <laughs> and she's like 
Yeah, I know. Even if you do it once a day, it will still be effective. But we just say about three times the amount that you have to do because we know that people don't actually reach those goals that we set for them. Oh my gosh. Okay. I want to tell everyone I know this to just be like, see, I am actually doing enough physio. (laughs) So that is, that is a really good though, description and explanation for people to know, you know, sometimes physio day is not a writing day. Um, and it's that compromise. Um, yeah, I guess it's also like, um, taking other steps to kind of conserve my energy. So, um, it might be that I like, you know, meal prep so that I, um, like don't have to cook after work. Um, or it might be that I like, as much as I care about the environment and try not to use like, um, pre-prepared meals. Sometimes I just have to accept that, like if I've had a long day at work, um, and, or if I have done physio, um, like it just hurts, um, to like, um, you know, get up and like, you know, cook and chop. whatever else. Yeah. Ch- oh my God. Chopping. How do people chop vegetables? I don't understand. It's exhausting. Yes. Oh my God. The best thing about having, like being on the NDIS, chopped watermelon. I was talking to my friend who also has cerebral palsy and I was like, I really want watermelon, but I can't chop it. And she was like, Laura, do you just ask your support worker to chop it for you? And I was like, oh my gosh, amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a very good point about actually going, you know, I can ask someone for help, whoever that person is. And I think we forget sometimes, or at least I forget. Um, and I just yeah think well no I can't do that but actually I can like there's no shame in that actually there's enormous strength in it I would love to hear amongst other things you're also passionate about accessible language yes so this aspect of accessibility is often really forgotten in mainstream understanding of equity and disability justice I think so can you tell us what has brought you to this passion and interest I guess, you know, having been a writer for such a long time, I've always been fascinated by um, language um, and the ways that it can unite us but also divide us. Uh, When I started working in, like, communications and disability a few years ago, I started to realise that language could divide us in an even more significant way in the sense that by making communications like full of jargon by using complex language, long sentences, long paragraphs, um, and other features of language that might make it harder for people with various disabilities to follow. What we're saying is you don't belong here. There's no place for you here. And I don't want to be part of anything, whether it's a program, an organization, or a sentence um, that says that to any other human being. So like I find that making sure that every kind of communication that I create both personally and in my work um, considers accessibility and considers um, the language that I'm using is essential. And so what that means is that sometimes I will have to use like a jargonistic word, but then if I do that, um, to make sure that I'm providing a definition immediately after in much the same way that you previously provided context uh, when we were talking about a particular slur. And the fact is that accessible communication isn't hard um, and it doesn't just benefit disabled people. How do you then, in your creative writing, how do you navigate the need to 
write in an accessible way and your creative flair, you know? Um, that is something that I struggle with in an, like, an ongoing way. If I'm uh, writing something to be published on like the internet, um, it's easier to put in place um, accessibility features or like say if I am using like a word that's jargon or that has certain like um, connotations, you know, I might put what's called a tooltip um, where like you can hover over a word and then it'll show you like the definition. But if I'm writing something for say like that's going to be in print, to be honest, that it is really, really hard. Um, and I, I don't have like a solid answer yet. Um, I guess some of the things that I can and do actively um, try to consider are like the size of the font that I use and the particular font that I use. Um, and then also making sure that like my paragraphs aren't too long for the same reason. And I guess that's not like a content consideration, but or I suppose is a testament to the fact that accessibility doesn't have to be and isn't just about content. It's about every feature of a message that you're conveying. People don't often realize this, but as a, like I studied English as a second language in school from first grade. And I was very privileged to also have like exposure in TV and music and all of that. But we never learned cursive. And so I still don't know how to write cursive properly. And also reading cursive, I find really hard because I've not had the exposure. I mean, the only English I would ever read was from books, either textbooks or, you know, books online, etc. So cursive is very inaccessible even to me. I get be I'm getting better at it with time, but I still, I would not choose cursive in my communication as well for the reason that I know it's really tricky. And... I guess I'm wondering if we can kind of finish our conversation, Laura, with you telling us what does intersectionality mean to you? So intersectionality to me means, I guess, opportunity. Um, I, like I'm choosing to look at it as um, an opportunity to consider the ways in which like not just my identity but other people's identities um, give them and give me like a unique perspective on the world um, and I think it would be easy to think of intersectionality and marginalization and belonging to a marginalized group or living on the intersections as something that offers disadvantage and you know there's no denying that it can and it does um, but it also offers so much potential um, and so much hope so for me, living on the intersections has given me an enormous amount of empathy that I don't think I would have had otherwise. Um, and that's just one example of the ways in which, I guess, intersectionality can be and is um, that source of hope and growth. Um, like the people that are changing the world, the people that are changing the status quo um, and challenging traditions are those of us who in whatever way live and exist um, in and on the intersections. I love that answer. Um, so Laura, tell us where can people find you and support your work? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I am 
this girl as in like t-h-i-s-g-i-r-l um underscore rights um w-r-i-t-e-s um on twitter and instagram and i have a wordpress blog called laura's adventures in literature um where i discuss disability representation in literature wonderful and all of these links will be in the show notes so everyone who's listened to the episode right now go down to our show notes and just click on them and go and follow laura thank you so much for coming to unmarginalized laura it was so lovely to have you today thank you so much for having me before we go, a grateful thanks to the City of Melbourne Ask Grant 2022 for supporting this episode and the entire second season of the Unmarginalized podcast. I would also like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this episode was produced, the Bunarang people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. As we tell our stories, I want to highlight the traditional owners of this land have been storytellers for generations. If you enjoyed or learned something from the episode, please rate, review and share it with a curious person in your life.